Hello and welcome to the Righteous Remnant Podcast. If you'd like to support our ministry or find out more about us, you can do so at therighteousremnant.org. All right. Welcome to the Righteous Remnant. Um, This week, we're going to be talking about receiving inheritance. Um, You know, inheritance, adoption and inheritance, I think are themes, again, that are largely misunderstood. I think when we tend to think of adoption, we tend to think of a little orphan who's very pathetic and, you know, you oh, you take pity on the orphan and then you adopt them, right? And that's not really what the scriptures are talking about when they're talking about adoption. I think there is that element also, okay? I'm not going to say that that's not there at all, but um, this is really a contextual issue, again, where we have to understand that adoption today works a little bit different than adoption did in the ancient world in the first century. In the first century, adoption was really primarily for rich noble families of Roman households. Okay, so if you were a rich, um, if you were a a Roman patrician, right, a noble of Rome, um, it, it was a patriarchal society. So you had to have a son that would be the heir, okay? And that son would take over all of your states, everything, when you died. Um, but there's a problem. What if, number one, what if you don't have any sons? Okay. If you don't have any sons, then what you need to do is you need to adopt a son from another house. Okay. And that's really the idea of adoption that Paul is also referring to. Okay. So you would generally adopt a second or third son from another house, another noble house, and they would become your heir. All right. And that's why adoption and in scripture is is always linked to this idea of inheritance. You're going to see that when we look at some of these texts, okay? Um, so for example, in Romans 8, um, in verse 14, it says this, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. Okay? So, again, there you see how adoption and inheritance is linked together. So, Paul's point here is that we're not slaves of God. That's not our identity. Okay? But he is going to say, but right now we are slaves. (laughs) We're slaves for a purpose, but our true calling is to be sons of God, all right? And the idea being here, and he, you know, he refers to this a little bit in Galatians, where he talks about, you know, even the heir, before he comes of age, is like a servant in the house, right? And, And that's what he's speaking about with us, that in this age, we are servants, Okay, because what we're doing is we're in training to receive our inheritance. All right. And Paul is is constantly, you know, linking this idea of inheritance. And I think that this is an idea that most Christians do not understand at all. Okay. But inheritance is extremely important, extremely important topic in the New Testament because it really speaks to the purpose that we have in this age. And I think, you know, if you if you ask the average Christian, you know, what's the purpose? you know, of this life, 
it's going to be something like, well, to get to heaven and try and bring as many people with you, right? Or if they're more theologically trained, you know, they'll give something like to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But, you know, what does that really mean to glorify God? I've heard so many people define that in so many different ways because it's not a really clear term. It's intentionally, it's intentionally vague, so it can be kind of all-encompassing, you know? It's like when churches say, you know, our mission is to love God and love people. To me, that's not really a mission statement. I understand why churches say that because it literally encompasses everything that you could possibly be doing in a church. I think it's actually much more helpful when you try and clarify what particular aspects you feel called to do as a church, right? Because the reality is not every church is going to be great at everything, okay? And, well, this this is kind of a side topic, okay? But the idea here of inheritance is very important to our understanding of what the purpose of this age is and what our purpose in the age to come is, all right? And you know, I said earlier that many Christians believe the purpose of this age is really just to go to, to make it into heaven, right? And to bring as many people along with you. I think that's not a bad answer, um, but I would argue that that's really only a part of it, okay? And we are trying to get into, you know, into heaven or into the age to come, into life, into eternal life. We are trying to bring many with us, but um, it's just getting in is really only a part of it. And, you know, the way I always put it is, like, this is, you know, when the scripture speaks about salvation, being saved, I always say that salvation is the door of the kingdom. So if you imagine the kingdom like a giant castle, salvation is like the front door. And, like, that's a glorious door because you got to make it in there to get to the rest of the castle. But there's an entire kingdom, right, that um, is also really important for us to understand. And if we only understand the kingdom as being the door of salvation, then what happens is we become very um, myopic in our focus, Right, and what I mean by that is that, you know, you have this very common thing where, you know, many Christians be like, "Well, I, I just got to get saved, right?" And that means I got to put my faith in Christ, and you know, I got to continue keep going to church and stuff like that. But you know, once I do that, then I can also be rich. I can also, you know, go on vacations. I can also become maybe CEO of my company. I can also have all these other plans and dreams. As long as I stay Christian and I keep faith in Christ, right, well, then I can also do all this other kind of stuff. And that, to me, is a typical understanding if you don't understand what the rest of the kingdom is about, okay? If all you understand is salvation, if that's your focus, then what happens is you're basically just trying to get into the kingdom. The way I always, you know, the analogy I always use, it's like in college, I used to take, um, you know, you take some classes, not for a letter grade, but you take them pass, not pass, right? And that's, you know, and... I once took a class, pass, not pass, right? And I remember I got um, I got a really good grade on my midterm and I got a really good grade on my term paper. And so on my final exam, I just needed to get an F, but an F that wasn't too low. You know, I need to get like a 50 on the final exam rather than like a 30. If I got a 30, I might fail the class. But if I got at least a 50 or better, I was going to pass class. So, you know, I didn't study at all for that final. Not at all. You know, I literally just went in there. I finished the final in like 10 minutes and because I didn't I, I didn't care if I got a D on it. I didn't care because I, I, I knew that it was going to be pretty easy for me to pass that class. And that's the way lots of Christians approach this life, right? Like, hey, I just got to be a Christian. And if I, if I'm, you know, if I just make it in, whatever, right? And that's really because we don't understand the purpose. But what Paul is getting at here is that the purpose is that we are training to receive our inheritance, Okay, and the idea there is the inheritance is the kingdom that is being passed from the father to the son 
and the son is sharing it with his family, right? That's why this idea of he is our he is our brother, our elder brother, kind of, but he is our co-heir. We are co-heirs with Christ because the idea here is that the bride of Christ is united with Christ. So the two are one, and the bride obviously is a is a large group of people, and so. The, this large group of people is co-ruling with Christ and sharing in his rulership of the inheritance. Well, what is the inheritance? The inheritance is the creation, okay? It's all that exists that we're going to rule forever. Um, the problem is most Christians don't understand, you know, don't have much of a vision of that. It's really like you go to heaven, you sit on a cloud, you play a harp, and you sing forever. And it's like your inheritance is like a harp and a cloud, <laughs> it's like it's like okay well then doesn't everybody get one like what's the big deal here and the answer is that um no that's not a good understanding okay that is not a good understanding i think of the biblical data um that all, all of that is from you know uh, like dante right that it, it's from like medieval you know tradition uh, from the church that comes from the medieval times right and um, it's not a good biblical portrayal of what's going to happen. Really, the biblical um, emphasis is not that we are going to go to heaven. The biblical emphasis is that we will be raised from the dead, okay? And that's an actually pretty big difference, okay? Because we kind of imagine that, you know, when we die, we're going to go to heaven. We're going to get, you know, you know, like I said, a robe and a harp. Um, but we're going to be kind of like spirits, like disembodied spirits floating around, and it's just going to be like we're on like an eternal drug trip. <laughs> I think that's how a lot of people imagine heaven. And, um, you know, N.T. Wright points out that a lot of this is really influenced from um, from Plato, right? That this was really the Platonic understanding of the afterlife. Like, you know, that if you were good, in, in a Platonic understanding, if you were good, then your your soul would be freed from your, from your flesh, from your body on death. And... Um, and the idea was that your body was where all the evil stuff was, and then your your soul would be free, and then it would go on into bliss forever, something like that. And that idea has really lingered in the minds of Western peoples, right? And what happened was when the the church, or excuse me, when um, Christianity began, remember I said that initially it was led by Jewish people in the Jewish context, but what happened is very soon after, it became dominated by Gentiles. And, domi- and, and Gentiles became the leaders of the church, and they lost a lot of the Jewish background and understanding. And so I think there's this misunderstanding. The Jewish emphasis was never on being a disembodied spirit and going into bliss. The Jewish emphasis was always on resurrection, okay? That we would be resurrected... All right, and that there would be more life after, okay, and life on the earth, okay, and that's a very important difference here, right? But if you actually look at the scriptures, if you go back and read like 1 Corinthians 15, right, it's all about the resurrection of the dead, okay, and it and it's about how we're going to receive glorified bodies, okay? Bodies that are not subject to decay like our current bodies that don't get old and sick and stuff like that, but they're glorified, right? They're like perfect immortal bodies, right? And those bodies in 1 Corinthians 15 are likened, those are, are eternal dwelling places, okay? Like uh, Paul likens the bodies that we have now to tents, okay? Like this body is a tent and it can get holes and it's really only good for a temporary living place, all right? But when we're resurrected from the dead, okay, these bodies that are like tents, now we're going to get our full dwelling place, our home, okay? And, you know, in Christian tradition, this gets translated into you get a mansion in heaven or something like that. <laughs> and, 
you know, I'm sure there will be mansions in the age to come, but that's not what Paul's referring to. He's referring to the bodies that we have, okay? The bodies that we receive will be our eternal dwelling places in that, right, they're going to be, you know, tough, (laughs) right? They're going to be glorified. We're not going to get, you know, we're not going to get sick and we're not going to, you know, die of hunger and all this kind of stuff. And we're going to live in these bodies forever. And, um, and the expectation was that this would be an earthly resurrection, okay? And that really is the picture that we see at the end of Revelation. What happens? We see heaven and earth becomes one, right? Heaven and earth are joined together. We see this this vision of New Jerusalem descending from the sky, and the angel declares, "Now the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our God." Right? It's like there's this unifying of heaven and earth um, that was really always supposed to be, but that's that's the restoration, right? The the it's all restored as it was originally intended. But the whole point was that we were, as humans, originally created to be rulers over the earth. And God has never abandoned that plan. Right? It's not like, oh, well, the humans messed it up and we're just going to get rid of the earth and they'll just live in heaven with me forever. No, that's not how any of this works, right? Well, instead, what we see is we see a new heaven and a new earth, okay? And there's you know scholarly debate about that. Um, most scholars, well, I don't want to say most because I'm not really sure, but the scholars that I tend to lean towards um, believe that it, it, it speaks more of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth, okay? So it could be totally brand new, it's possible, um, but I think it's more likely it's more of a renewed heaven and a renewed earth. But the point is, at the end, we see there's bo- there's both, and then they're unified, okay? And so the point is that the age to come is going to look a lot more like this than we tend to think, right? It's not it's not going to be us sitting on harps, or excuse me, sitting on clouds, you know, singing forever. I do think there'll be worship in the age to come. But really, the 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 snippets that we get have much more stuff to do than just sing, okay? So for example, Jesus, um, you know, talks about the one who is faithful with 10 talents of gold, right? Um, He receives rulership over 10 cities, okay? And I think that's a much better picture of what's to come, this idea that there's going to be cities to rule, that there's going to be civilization in some way that will need management and leadership. And I think that um, that lends itself much better to a picture of what's going to become. I remember with, um, you know, my, my high school and college kids, I would show them, you know, pictures of like Star Wars, of like Coruscant, right? Which is like, you know, if you're a Star Wars fan, it's the, um, you know, the, the, the home world of the Galactic Republic, right? And if you look at it, it's just a giant city, right? Like if you've ever, you know, seen the Star Wars movies, Coruscant is just one big city. It takes over the entire planet. And I think that that's an interesting kind of portrayal of what the age to come might look like. It's kind of a speculative picture of that. And it's actually one of the reasons why I really enjoy sci-fi uh, because I do think sci-fi is, it appeals to us because it gives us a picture of a dream that God has imprinted in our DNA, right? And this is kind of getting into a, a separate subject, but Jordan Peterson talks about this idea of archetypes. And these archetypes are like these these stories that have been imprinted in our DNA. And so when we hear other stories that touch on those archetypes, they resonate in our hearts and we like those types of stories, right? That's why you're going to see the same tropes over and over again in all these different movies. Like, for example, the coming of age story, right? The story about the young 
boy who's like the chosen one, right? And he grows up into his calling and his destiny, right? That How many movies and books is, is that trope in? And that's because that's part of the eternal story that appeals to us, right? It, it It's, it, it, you know, I'm getting into something else. But this is the reason I think why sci-fi can be really popular because there's something in that vision that appeals to us because I think that's part of our destiny. I think part of our destiny is going to be creating, you know, these types of worlds in the age to come managing this i this is all speculative right whenever we're getting to eschatology eschatology is by you know almost its definition it's going to be speculative all right um but i think god is going to continue to create that would be my guess i tend to think he's a creative god right so i would not be shocked at all if god continues to create new species and and then we play a role something like angels play in our in 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 their history, right? Like we're like the angels in their history, you know. Like again, we're just guessing here, okay? Don't you know? I'm not writing a book about this and about how I went to heaven and had this vision. I'm just saying, I think there's room for this type of speculation because there are biblical data points that suggest these things, okay? And and that's important. Like we're still in Romans eight here, but I think that's what he's alluding to, right? Because this is what he says in in verse seventeen. He says, "Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may also share in His glory." Okay. And here Paul is linking the degree to which we suffer in this life for Him to the glory that we shall have in the age to come, okay? And this is getting into eternal rewards and how there's going to be differences, right? So those of us who wasted our lives, and, you know, to be fair, all of us for sure are wasteful to some degree, but those who, like, completely wasted their lives, right, will receive no rewards in the age to come, okay? I think, if I, if I had to guess, I think that's what Jesus is referring to when he talks about, you know, the place, the outer darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I think, you know, traditionally, most people think that refers to hell. I don't think it does. I tend to think that it refers to the space outside of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Because it, 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 like, for example, in Matthew 25, 24, 25, it talks about the, the foolish virgins, right? The wise virgins have oil in their lamps. They see the bridegroom coming and they go into the wedding feast with the bridegroom. And, and I believe the wedding feast is symbolic of the place where rewards will be distributed. Okay, so the foolish virgins, they're the ones who get denied at the at the door, right, um, to the wedding feast. And um, and the thing is, you know, I think most Christians would say, oh, these are the ones who are not saved. I think they are saved. That would be my guess. Okay. And the reason is because they're, they're virgins. Okay. And the idea of, you know, virginity, biblically speaking, means that you have not defiled yourself. You've not worshiped another God. You've been faithful in that sense. Okay. You've kept yourself pure. And um, that's a big deal, right? Because, um, you know, when we get into salvation as, you know, allegiance or loyalty, believing, trusting loyalty, um, that's why idolatry or worshiping other gods is is really the sin that is demarcated many times in scriptures being the thing that um, cuts you off from God, right? And I think that the, the idea of them being virgins speaks to them being um, saved, 
Okay, that's my guess, okay? But they're foolish virgins, right? They're foolish virgins. They didn't have oil in their lamps. And so because of that, oil speaks of the anointing of the Spirit. They didn't have the anointing of the Spirit, so they had no light in their lamps, okay? And that speaks to effective ministry, okay? Speaking light means you're, you're truth-telling, okay? In a way that is causing other people to see the difference between right and wrong, all right, in a dark land. So the idea is that the bridegroom returns at the end of the age, right, when, when darkness covers the land, Okay, and that speaks of mass deception and confusion being over the whole earth. And the foolish virgins have no anointing of the Spirit and no ability to effectively shed light, right? And so because of that, they don't get to enter into the wedding feast, okay? And um, in another parable, we see that same wedding feast uh, metaphor, and in it we have you know somebody who came as a guest to the wedding feast, but they weren't wearing the proper clothes, right? So they were cast out of the wedding feast, okay? And I think this is speaking of the same thing, and the clothes always represent the righteous deeds, okay? They they didn't have the righteous deeds that were required, all right, to be part of the wedding feast, okay? Now, this is my guess, you know, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, obviously, of these types of things, but I think these are pretty good guesses, all right? And here in Romans 8, Paul's talking about how we have to share in his sufferings if we're going to share in his glory, Okay? And he goes on, in verse 18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. Okay, I think this is NIV, so it, I think it really should say sons of God there. Um, you know, NIV always tries to make it gender, you know, like include women also. But the reason why I don't really like that is because, you know, when Scripture's talking about the sons of God, that's actually a title, okay? That's the title of the ruling council of heaven, all right? And, um, you know, this is referring to the divine council. Um, if you're not familiar at all with that idea, I would highly recommend you check out Michael Heiser's stuff on YouTube, on his podcast and his books. He's got so much stuff out there now. But the divine council paradigm is actually so helpful for understanding a lot of these biblical texts. Because when Paul's talking about being sons of God, he's really talking about that That title refers to the ruling class of angel. That's how we, I guess we could think about it in, a, in an easy way. The ruling class of angel that was in the Old Testament period. Okay, So that's the idea here, that to be co-heirs with Christ, all right, we need to become sons of God. That's the calling that's on our life, right? That's the calling. But many are called, but few are chosen, all right? That Jesus repeats that two times in the Gospels in two different locations. And I think a lot of people, again, because so much of the theology of the church has been oriented around salvation, so there's not much of a paradigm. So many are called, but few are chosen. That just must mean, you know, many are called to be saved, but they're not. You know, they don't get saved or something like that. But I don't think that that's what it re- refers to, okay? Um, the calling is, you know, to be part of that, you know, highest place of reward. Like, like the Scripture speaks about this all the time. Like Paul um, in, you know, First Corinthians chapter 9 around there talks about running the race, okay? And he's talking about running the race in a way is to win, to win the crown, all right, and he's talking about a crown that he's after, and the crown speaks of a, pl- a position of authority in the age to come. I think that we generally tend to think of, you know, crown like everybody gets a crown, <laughs> you know, like everyone gets a crown. Um, I don't think so, though. Okay, I don't think so. Um, I'm not sure, but I don't think so. All right, but Paul is saying here that. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. Meaning, all the in every way that we suffer now 
it will be very worth it. In fact, when we look back on our lives, we'll be like, man, the best things I ever did was when I suffered for the sake of Christ and I held firm in faith, all right? Because those are the things that are gonna be the most greatly rewarded, okay? And in, in another place, he talks about, you know, these these sufferings, these trials are working for us a glory, right? And, and that's the idea here. That's why Jesus says, blessed are you and people slander you and say all kinds of evil things about you because of me, right? Rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven. That's why Peter and John, you know, they got flogged, which is a terrible, terrible torture. They were tortured for the sake of Christ. It says they went away rejoicing because they understood they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name. Again, this paradigm of you have to suffer if you want the greater rewards, all right? And that is, you know, all part of this because the inheritance is different, right? Like our share of the inheritance, the inheritance is all of creation, but our share of the inheritance will be determined at the judgment and will be according to our deeds, our righteous deeds, okay? And this is the part that I think brings so much confusion because, look, we all believe that nobody is saved by their deeds, okay? No one's saved by their righteous deeds. We're all saved by faith alone, okay? But all the rewards of the age come, the inheritance and all that, that's all by works. And that's why it's such a big deal in the scriptures and it's a huge part of what we are to understand, what we are to value, all this kind of stuff. Um, But so much of the church doesn't understand or have any vision for any of these types of things, okay? So Paul says that, and he says, for the creation waits an eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, okay? What's he speaking of? He's speaking of, you know, we have the the divine council, all right? The, you know, the Ben Elohim, all right? And these are the sons of God, the ruling, you know, the ruling beings in the heavenly place, okay? And the idea is that many of these um, were rebellious, and that's why there's war in the heavens. Okay, that's the, that's part of the, the 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 story of the age that we're in, the the war between the powers that we're in. That's why you know Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood, it's not against people, it's against the powers, it's against the rebellious powers in heaven. That's who we're fighting, right? We're on Jesus's team, right? We're we've we've given our, ourselves in loyalty to Him, and He's at war with them. That's what like Psalm two is about, right? Psalm two is about you know the rulers right, um, band together, right, against the Lord and against his anointed one, right? And that's this age, right, where the rulers are banding together against Jesus, the one who's been given all authority in heaven and earth by the Father because he proved his worthiness on the cross, right? He obviously was always God, but he proved his worthiness through the cross, and now he's been given all authority over all the kingdoms, okay? And so all the authority of the kingdoms, um, this is divine, this is rulership over the nations of the earth in the ages past was given to the powers, right? But now that authority has all been given to Christ, okay? And Christ now um, is going to rule over all of it, but this age is for the testing of the people of humanity, of the nations in this age, okay? And if we show faithfulness to Christ, then we will be awarded a greater share of the inheritance, okay? So the whole creation is waiting in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed, all right? For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected in hopes that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the sons of God or the children of God. All right, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth 
right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. Again, all of these ideas are, are in, you know, intertwined all together, right? Our bodies are going to be redeemed. We're going to receive our true bodies, right? Our true eternal dwelling places, right? The whole creation is going to be renewed and restored to the way it was always intended to be, okay? Um, for in this hope we were saved, he says. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently, okay? So this is what Paul is saying. Everything's going to be restored, okay? And then we're going to be given our places in the kingdom, and the whole creation is waiting for this, right? Because the whole creation is, is frustrated right now because things are not right, right? The order is not right. And so because of that, there's war, because of that, there's earthquakes and famines and sickness and disease and all these terrible things that plague the entire creation. It's not just humanity. It's the animals. It's the plants. It's everything. It's sickness and death and all of it, right? But when Christ returns, right, the trumpet shall sound, the dead shall be raised, right? Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection, okay? He's the first one to be resurrected, all right, but then he will come and resurrect all those that um, are faithful to him. Okay, and he'll resurrect. And then you know we see there's multiple resurrections. The first resurrection um, is is looks like it's really for the rulers. I won't really get into that in this episode. And then there's going to be a general resurrection of the dead, and then everybody goes to judgment. All right, and then there's renewal of heaven and earth, and all this kind of stuff. And then there's the eternal state. Now, again, we're all speculating about the eternal state, but I, I think it's important that we have a uh, a biblical understanding, a sense of what the eternal state is about, because otherwise, you know, it's it's hard to live this life like we're supposed to. Okay, it's hard to live this like we're like we're supposed to. Like, I remember um, I started, you know, um, uh, teaching youth kids. I, I became a youth pastor for one year of my life. I was a youth pastor, um, and. I remember I was shocked because it was the first Korean church I'd ever been to where, you know, the kids didn't really have a vision for college. You know, I'd be like, hey, where do you want to go to college? And they'd be like, well, I don't know, <laughs> you know maybe community college or something. And to be clear, that's fine. Okay, I don't have a problem with that. Um, I was just shocked, though, because usually in a Korean context, um, you know, college, 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 college is like what parents are preaching to them all the time. Um, it wasn't like that, you know, um, when I was youth pastoring that year. So, you know, what I did was I decided, hey, you know, these kids, it would be helpful for them to actually have a vision for college. This is before, you know, the colleges were as crazy as they were to, as they are today. And so I took them. I took my youth kids. You know, I, I showed them you know, UCLA, we went to Berkeley and Stanford. I took them to all of these really nice campuses. And the purpose of that was so that they could see what it was that they were working for, right? And again, like, I, I'm not trying to say that them going to college, you know, is like the goal of, you know, their lives or anything like that. Um, but I did want them to have vision for it. Like, why study, right? Like, I wanted them to be good students. So I wanted them to have a vision for it. And so, you know, they, they went to these these college campuses, and then they were able to see what it was like. Because before, it was just an idea. Oh, yeah, I'm going to go to take the SATs, and I'm going to go to college, and, and whatever. But it's different when you're actually there, and you're walking around, and you're seeing the huge buildings, right? And you're getting a sense of what life would really be like to be able to go to one of these schools, right? And, it, and many of them got vision for it. 
you know? And when you get vision for it, then you start to work and you start to do all that kind of stuff. Well, in the same way, Christians need vision for this. And this is actually what the Bible's trying to give us vision, right? The Bible's trying to give us vision. Paul's trying to give us vision for this, right? Like, so many letters of the New Testament are trying to encourage God's people through suffering and persecution. (laughs) You know, it's like, you know, it's hard for us because we're actually so comfortable in suffer and have such little suffering and persecution. And because of that, we don't have a very mature theology on why it's important to go through suffering and persecution. Right. And without that, I'll just tell you, I have been through that much suffering and persecution in my life. <laughs> you know, like I've never been flogged or right? never been boiled in oil. Right. I've, I've never been physically tortured at all. Right. I've just had people call me mean things. Right. That's it. Um, but even that is super painful, right? And if I didn't have like a theology to help me understand why God allows me to go through this, right? Because I think the the tendency for many people is when you go through hard times, when you go through suffering, you naturally go, God, why? If you love me, why are you allowing this to happen? And the Bible is actually answering that question many times over. The New Testament, right? So many chapters of the New Testament are really about encouragement to go through suffering. But you need this paradigm. You need a paradigm of what the suffering is for, right? Because if if it's just about salvation, there's no real place for suffering, right? Like, you don't need to suffer, right? Like, suffering, what it does is it shows your faith. It shows what you really believe. It shows if there really is real loyalty, trusting loyalty to Christ, right? It's tested in the place of suffering, all right? And that's why God actually does want to test us, right? Because if he tests us and we pass the test, then he can reward us. He will not reward us if we don't do anything that deserves a reward, <laughs> right? I think that's part of the difficulty right now because when when we have a theology that says, we can do nothing good at all, and Christ is the only one who can do good stuff, and and all, you know, anything good that's been done has been done by Christ on my behalf, and I have done nothing, right? Well, number one, uh, what the, what's the point of a judgment then, right? Is that the judgment? God's just going to, like, read through all, like, the the sins of your life, like, everything that you thought that was kind of good or you felt like it was kind of good, he's going to go, nope, that was evil because of this, because you can't do anything good, and then he's going to go, you know, but Jesus paid it all, and I think... I think some people have that view of the judgment, right? That's what it's going to be. It's just God telling us how terrible everything that we did was in life. And, you know, I don't think that's what it's going to be, okay? I don't think. I do think he will point out the sins that we committed, all right? I do think there will be grace given to us, right? But I also think rewards will be distributed for um, righteous deeds, right? For acts of faithfulness, right? And that's exactly what, you know, many scriptures say. Like, if you look at First Peter you know, um, he says this, this is in First Peter chapter 1, he says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. 
okay? So what Peter's saying here is that the reason why you're suffering, right, is so that your faith can be proven genuine. Because true faith that is proven is of greater worth than gold, okay? And why is that? Because that's because that's what God values. God values faith that has been tried through suffering, that has persevered through suffering, and because that's so valuable to him, he will reward in great measure those who have it. That's how it works. We give him faith. He gives us all the blessings of creation, right? It's a pretty good deal. But see, if you're God, what's really valuable to you? Because you can just snap your finger and make whatever you want, right? Like, that's God. You can boo, 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 boo. Well, what's really valuable? What's valuable is when creatures, creatures that he created with free will, choose to give, to trust him and give him faith. You have to understand, it's to God it's the most valuable thing in creation when we demonstrate faith, real faith. And, you know, we can sometimes, like, just cheapen that. Like, oh, yeah, if you just, you know, go to this, you know, you, you just say the sinner's prayer at this one service, you know, like, that's it, and and you're done, right? And it's like, no, look. Look, I'm not. I don't want to. I don't want to say that that's worthless. It's definitely not worthless. Okay, but look, it, it, I, I do weddings all the time. Right? People make vows all the time. The vows are valuable, but what's more valuable is the faithfulness that proves the vow. Right? The lifetime of faithfulness is what proves the vow. Okay? Lots of people make vows, but it it it's special when a person is faithful to their vows their whole life. That's that's valuable. I think that's exactly how God sees it, okay? So I commend all those that make vows um, to the Lord, right? I think that's what baptism is. Baptism is a vow of fidelity. I have chosen to die to myself and now live for Christ. I'm dead to my old life, right? Now I live for you alone, right? I think that's what, it's a. It's like a wedding vow to Jesus, okay? But lots of people get baptized and they're not faithful to their vows, okay? And that, um, that will not be rewarded. In fact, you know, according to the Bible, that is even worthy of greater punishment, okay? That's, you know, Hebrews chapter 10, all right? I can't, you know, I don't have all these verses, you know, memorized off the top of my head. Um, but that's exactly what he says here in, in Hebrews chapter 10. He talks about how we have to persevere in the faith, right? Therefore, brothers and sisters, since, um, what was, excuse me, let me go down. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished? Who's trampled the Son of God underfoot, who's treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who's insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Okay, so this is a warning against against apostatizing. All right, this is a warning against if 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 the glory of Jesus has been revealed to you, right, and you make vows to Him, okay, and then you forsake your vows. Well, you it's it would have been better that you had never made any vows. That's what the scripture is saying. Okay, um, and that's that's a scary reality. Um, but that's why look. I, you know, this, this is all, I didn't mean to go into all this today, but 
you know, that's why Jesus says you should count the cost, right? He's talking about only a fool, you know, um, says, oh, I can, you know, I can build this building, you know, but they don't count the cost. And they start building, and then halfway through, halfway through, they're like, oh, dude, I can't build this building. <laughs> like, I can't do this. And, and, and he says, no, what you should do is you should count the cost first before you make the decision to build the building. Okay, and the idea there, he's talking about the cost of being a disciple, right? He's saying you should not make a commitment to be a disciple unless you count the cost first, right? And I would just like to say, I I think that's pretty much the opposite of of what we generally do in the church. I think we try and get you know people to say the sinner's prayer by any means possible, right? Like like just get them to say it, get them you know commit your life to the Lord, you know, and we don't tell them, hey. It's a serious thing. You should not make this commitment to Christ unless you're sure that you can finish it. Right? Like, that's what I think the Bible says. All right? But again, it's because we don't understand. Right? If, if, if our paradigm is just salvation, all right? If, well, then, hey, we got to get people saved. Right? Anything in the hopes that they're saved because there's only, it's only pass fail. Right? But I, I don't think that's the paradigm that the scriptures give. Okay, it's not just a pass fail, all right? There is an aspect of pass fail certainly, but no, it's a graded exam. That's what I always say, okay? And there are degrees of punishment certainly, all right? Okay? I I, I know that, you know, for many people, we just tend to think it's uh, there's just one punishment, eternal torment in hell, and there's one, you know, and there's one passing, which is, you know, life on on the cloud with a harp <laughs> and eternal drug trip. But I I I think the data that the Bible gives us is is indicating that no, there's going to be you know there's going to be differing degrees of glory for those who make it into life, and there's going to be differing degrees of punishment for those who do not make it into life. Okay, and um, you know maybe we can do another episode on you know what the degrees of punishment could potentially be, um, but I think that's important for us to understand all of this. All right, hope all that makes sense, and God bless. See you later.